0: Police violence really destroys communities. It destroys a, a core sense of safety, of, um, of trust in government, and it destroys the officers.
1: Today I'm talking to Matt Nelson. Matt was born in Columbia and raised in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. For over five years, Matt served as the organizing director of Color of Change, and today he's the executive director of Presente.org. Presente.org is the nation's largest online Latinx with an X organizing group, advancing social justice with technology, media, and culture. This is Democracy in Color, the voice of the new American majority. I'm Amy Allison. You can listen to episodes of this podcast on democracyincolor.com, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. You can also tweet at Democracy Color with questions, comments, and episode suggestions. We look forward to hearing from you. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe and rate Democracy in Color on iTunes. Participate in a politics of cynicism, or do we participate in a politics of hope? Because when we are together, we got power and we can make decisions. I stand before you today as a candidate for the Democratic nomination for the presidency of the United States of America. We want to register to become first class citizens. Matt Nelson joins us on Democracy in Color. Hey, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks so much for having me on.
1: I have to congratulate you because you are the new executive director of Presente.org. Yes. That's pretty awesome.
0: Thank you. It's an honor to serve so many people around the country who really are working toward a, a better world for everybody. So it's exciting.
1: You're from Milwaukee.
0: That is a place that I still call home. I uh, grew up in Minneapolis and spent a lot of years in Milwaukee. Um originally from Colombia, so a um yeah, a, a Minnesotan Colombian is a Minolumbian, Um but Milwaukee is definitely a place I call home as well.
1: Yeah. You uh, recently actually this week wrote um really it's it's really a long social media post. Milwaukee riot, rebellion, or something else—whatever it is—we should talk. And so, I want to talk to you about what the heck is going on in your hometown. Um, give us a snapshot of what's been going on in the last few days.
0: Hmm. So it is a Milwaukee is sort of on this on this precipice. Um, in the last few days, we really saw we really saw it. It's. Um, you know, you never can tell when when, um, when the anger, when the frustration um, reaches a boiling point. Um, as my close friend Jamala Rogers says, there's no algorithm to predict when human rage reaches a boiling point. And I think we've seen it in Milwaukee. It's been simmering for a while. Um, and that's in part a reflection of of the type of economic and, and racial injustice and oppression that has um, that has uh, been part of everyday life um, from Milwaukee, and so I think this example, the the latest example um, that's in the news with this young man.
1: Well, tell us a story, um, just to get everyone up yeah. to speed.
0: So, um, uh, I mean, it's a story that happens multiple times a day. Is it began with what? Uh, we often hear of a routine traffic stop, which I think is is not the way we should talk about it. You know, these traffic stops that target young black and brown uh, people, you know, in a lot of ways, young black and brown men, are, are only routine in that they happen a lot. But it's part of a, a targeted racial profiling um, in cities like Milwaukee. So he was pulled over, and a lot of these stops... Um, happen without cause, it's a form of harassment, it's a form of targeted uh, harassment and intimidation. And and what happens in these stops is that um, police do um, uh, anything they can to um, find something that they can escalate the situation, whether it's a, um, you know, a, a um, you fit a description. Um, your car, they say, was, was potentially part of, of a crime or, or stolen. So there are all these things that happen. And what that leads to is, is, is escalation that can often lead to violence, um, that can often lead to jail time. And folks know that. So um, um, Seville Smith knew that. Because um, he had likely been pulled over multiple times um, and knew that these situations with, with officers can become deadly. Um, and so, you know, the, the stories, there's conflicting stories. Um, but what we pull out of it is that he fled the officer. The, there was a chase and he was gunned down. Um you know there there's going to be more video that that came out or that will come out, and there'll be a debate on whether or not he had a gun, how he was holding a gun, was the gun active. Um, and I really think the focus should go away from that into um, this environment that's created that that leads to that led to the death. Of, of this young man as well as like so many around the country. You
1: know, you're taking the, the, the broad view. Um, there is a tendency if you turn on CNN or, you know, m- most commentators are going to focus on the details of the case and um, there's enough questioning of the victim that happens in this where you say, well, may, maybe he did. I don't know the whole story. Well, maybe the, the whole story. And so it leads us, as you as you uh, alluded to, into a series of questioning about the, who the victim was and really what happened, giving uh, the police officer a reasonable doubt. But uh, the people in, um, in Milwaukee did not respond that way. You wrote extensively of something that happened a decade ago. Can you take us back uh, to that incident, which I you know i you're positioning as you know kind of uh, uh the, the tender that this match this incident lit
0: mm-hmm. and it definitely goes back before um Frank Jude, but that was one of the one of the key um moments of of a high point in organizing um around these issues of of police violence. Um, and 2006 was also uh, extremely active time in 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 Milwaukee's South Side. So you know, Milwaukee is known as, as always the top three seg- most segregated cities in the country. The North Side is seen as a black area. South Side is a Latino area, um, and then the East Side is is the university um, white area. And River West is seen as like the the um, kind of counterculture. Um, somewhat you know somewhat diverse um, area of the city and so 2006 was also the the time where there were massive immigrant rights marches going on in the city and so there was an active political culture that was really bringing communities together. Um,
1: I don't know much about Milwaukee yeah. but the demographics have a sig- significant sounds like a significant immigrant population.
0: Yes yes and um, and 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 still like, like an immigrant population that's diverse enough where, um, where like folks really hold on to their, um, uh, German immigration story, their Irish immigration story, their Serbian immigration story, their Italian immigration story. Um, as well as the, um, you know, there, there are, there's a a really strong population of, of Hmong folks in Milwaukee and, um, and yeah, so so it is this center for that, and you know the marches in 2006 around immigration really began to uh, to coalesce these conversations around Black Brown unity, and then the um, the Frank Jude um, uh, mobilizing and so what happened to uprising. Frank Jude? So I um, in 2004. Um, I ran a pizzeria in Milwaukee Southside and the Southside is very close to the Bayview neighborhood. And um one weekend we had some uh some customers come in a group from Bayview and Bayview is sort of the white enclave um in Milwaukee Southside. Um or adjacent to Milwaukee Southside. And um they came in and they they looked very shell-shocked, um very scared um and they sort of came in to get pizza and i could tell something was going on so we asked and they said oh you know we had to um we had to leave the neighborhood because you know early this morning it, you know, like last night in the wee hours of the morning um they heard screaming um there were like dozens of cops and the entire block was blocked off and they 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 thought it was some horrible uh, mass murder with the amount of police activity around and then I you know and then we were saying well 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 wow we should see we should hear what's going on on in the news like this has to be on the news um so it wasn't it wasn't on the news that night wasn't on the news that week wasn't on the news the next week it took um for the news to start reporting, this happened in October for the, of 2004. The news didn't really start reporting the story until um, early in 2005. And the story was this. Um, Frank Jude was a um, a very well-liked, gregarious, young black man who arrived at a party um, that was hosted by a member of the Milwaukee Police Department. And... Um, you know Frank was getting a, a fair amount of attention. Um, I guess he was also um, known as like a um just like a, a really um a, a connector in the in 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 the in the scene and so um people liked him um, and the police had a problem with with him being there with a young black man being at his party and then a young black man being the center of attention at the party. So the police accused him of stealing a wallet um, and that escalated into a confrontation with Frank as he was trying to leave the party. And it became, um, there were a, a number, I believe, seven undercover cops in that party um, and they began to beat Frank Jude. Um, Repeat, they began to beat him um to within an inch of his life and then when the first police came on the scene the the uniform police they um either allowed the beating in to continue or joined in um and as I write in the piece, you know there was a um uh, a, a ringleader um who was later found out to actually be an organizer of of police gangs within the department he had a uh he fashioned himself after the punisher cartoon um and so he had a massive punisher tattoo on his chest um he was later one of the charges he was he was eventually um, um um, convicted of a number of things, including um, threatening to blow up the police precinct that he was fired from, um, and the other charge, or the weapons charge, he he bought a replica of the Punisher's weapon. So it was a it was a um, an altered um, machine gun, essentially, that he had fashioned after the Punisher's weapon, um, and you know. There's a lot to say about gun laws, but the only reason he was um that he he was charged with that is not because he bought a street sweeper high powered weapon, not because he like optimized it for massive kill zone um but because he bought it with somebody else's credit card and so this person um going back to the frank jude beating um orchestrated a lot of the beating. Um at one point he ordered a a new cop to take the fountain pen out of out of his pocket and and stab it in frank's ear. um Frank had already been cut he had already been stomped from head to toe and um when the officer hesitated um, uh the 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 police gang leader uh, ordered him again and then when the officer like didn't do it hard enough um the 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 leader uh took his pen and stabbed Frank um in both ears and he ended up bleeding out of both ears and Frank really thought he was going to die he had they essentially left him to die um he had multiple fractures in his face um he had uh uh damage throughout his his entire his entire body. Um but he lived. He lived and later a photograph of Frank in the hospital came out into the media uh which sparked um tremendous outrage.
1: So this was 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um were were the police officers responsible charged and convicted at the time?
0: So they were seven were eventually charged and um and and they were all acquitted on the state charges. Um, Officer uh, Bartlett had had killed two people in the past, choked somebody, was known to like smash through windows, um, spit on children, um, and he was still in the police force during the Frank Jude beating, um, and he was. Also acquitted a number of officers were then um, eventually charged and convicted when the federal government came in um, on a federal case um, and it was a a so that acquittal is what happened in two thousand six
1: now you're you know we're we're going back ten years because you're laying the groundwork for Uh, The riots that have been happening in the last few days in in Milwaukee, I want to ask you because, you know, uh, when Oscar Grant, who was another case of a police killing, was shot on a BART platform um, on New Year's night, New Year's Day, um, that sparked organizing and it really changed the culture of the city. Could you say this kind of a similar thing happened in uh, Milwaukee with the black-brown organizing that you uh, mentioned earlier?
0: Yeah, and I want to say that that you know, when we think about police violence, um we often think about the impact that it has on on the victims and their family. Um but this police violence really destroys communities. It destroys a a core sense of safety of um, of trust in government, and it destroys the officers. So I mentioned in the piece that to this day, one officer who is acquitted, um, he rakes everybody's leaves in the fall. He shovels his entire block sidewalk in the winter. He carries everybody's groceries um, as some like form of penitence. Like he's, he's a destroyed... Um, something, something deep in his heart broke when he was forced to torture Frank Jude, and even though he was acquitted, um, it changed him. It broke him, um, and and I think that that is like just one mark of of the deep harm of of police violence. That I think, and then when it's applied to a community. Day after day after day after day, year after year, when you're the constant target of violence, harassment, intimidation, abuse, um, it takes something from you. And just seeing the, the young folks who are often on the front lines of these, call it what you want, rebellion, riot, something, was, something so important was taken from them. Um, not just their friends and loved ones, you know, often, uh, you know, I, I, when I was in Milwaukee, I went to one, you know, at least one funeral a month. Um, And I saw, you know, usually, you know, a lot of the same young folks who had to bury like someone in their class that often too. Um,
1: Traumatized people, aren't they?
0: I think, I I think it's, uh, yeah. And I think it, it it just shows that it's not just violence on the individual, it's not just abusing uh, a person or a group of people. It really is um shaking the core of of how we can have functioning societies and cities.
1: Is what's happening in Milwaukee now uh a riot, a rebellion, or something else? I mean you asked that question.
0: I think it's uh an uh, incredible opportunity to um, to find another way to dramatically change police culture and um, and police structures and police funding. And so, when you asked about what happened after Frank Jude, um, a lot did happen. You know, there were thousands and thousands of people on the streets. You know, and and the community. And I was there. We went through all the things that we're supposed to do when we try to reform and make things better as, as activists, as organizers, as people of conscience. So we, we improved the, the civilian review board. We dramatically improved police policy. There was a federal monitor who came in. Some police officers went to jail. There were um, directives given to the rank and file. Um, There was a shift. There were announcements, proclamations from the mayor, the city council that we're going to change course. We're going to do policing different. And the rules changed. The policy changed. The law changed. The culture didn't change. The budget didn't change. I
1: was here after these high-profile incidents, and um, I'd be surprised if the latest um, shooting in Milwaukee uh, doesn't follow the same pattern. We hear that it's you know one or two bad apples, or that the victim's actions were really responsible for police response, or we hear that it's hard to be a police officer, so cut them a break. They're doing their best. They're in harm's way. They use that phrase, in harm's way. They apply to both uh, soldiers and to police forces. How do we get beyond those common framing, the common framing of police violence into something that's going to help us really understand what the solution could be.
0: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And I, I think police violence makes it difficult to be a police officer. I think that the culture is not only destructive in all the ways we talk about, but it's, it's counterproductive. Um, so in Milwaukee, you know, there's, there, uh, uh, the law enforcement, the MPD, is asking for an additional $30 million um, that would largely go to more aggressive policing, more targeted policing, more weapons. And there's a real, a real call here now to say that $30 million should, shouldn't go to the police budget. It should go to violence prevention. It should go to um, uh, the social safety net. It should go to a shift in culture. Um, and it shouldn't embolden uh, the officers and incentivize uh, what we see, what we see going on currently. Because um, yes, this is beyond policing. What's happening in Milwaukee goes beyond policing. Um, and
1: what it- do you make of the call for calm, the call call for you know nonviolence that we're hearing in the last couple of days? The protesters are, uh, you know as the protesters take action, they break windows and, you know, set fire to things and there's, you know, uh, is the response that we're calling for calm the right response? Should there be something else that that the city leaders need to do they're not doing right now?
0: Mm -hmm. I mean, the best way to to stop a, a pot from boiling over is to turn off the heat source, and the heat source is coming from this culture of violence that in many ways the the folks who have the power and in in certain ways like the the disproportionate violence is coming from from police Um hmm.
1: i mean it's a it's a hard question uh, we're grappling with it not only in Milwaukee but other places. The question I have is. Why did Milwaukee explode in this way? As Jamala Rogers, uh, who's a well-known organizer in Ferguson and other places, as she says, you never know when uh, it's going to explode. And we haven't seen cities explode like this uh, really since uh, since Ferguson and then before in the 70s when race riots were racking um, cities across the country.
0: I think, the you know, and getting back to this, um you know calls for calm you know there it's important to to um to say that that the type of violence happening you know doesn't help and isn't going to get us what we want um but whenever you um if you really want to like like provide calm you know, just like you would calm a friend, like you have to give clear reason why things are going to be okay. You have to show, oh, this is going to be okay because we're going to do X, Y, and Z. We're going to change things dramatically. Um, just calling for calm without that commitment to change and transformation uh, rings hollow. It rings hollow on the folks who are are on the, on the front lines and who are... Um, who are bearing the brunt of a lot of this, uh, of a lot of this violence and, and destruction? And I, I think about New York. You know that when when the New York Police Department was receiving you know very very much legitimate criticism over their policies and practice, the NYPD announced they said, "Okay, we're only going to do essential police work," which meant that they have reduced their policing by ninety percent. And so, according to them. Only essential police work that they do is just ten percent of what they do, and during that time where they went on this what was called a work strike, um, crime went down, safety went up, overall satisfaction with people's neighborhood and living situations went up, and so I think that that shows that if we're gonna believe the police departments, unless even if we say half of what they do is not essential, if we can focus on the on the essential stuff, the good policing work, you know, pulling over, um, black youth repeatedly is not good police work. Um, the type of like targeted racial profiling is not good police work. The, um, the violence, the intimidation is not good police service. We cut out all that and then correspondingly cut the budget. So, Hey, if, if, if it's only 10% essential police work, then There you go. You have 10 percent of the budget you have. And we can move that money um, into things that are really important for community health and stability.
1: Matt, what's your thought about uh, how brown and black communities in cities like Milwaukee can hold police accountable? And I'm talking about what are the immediate next steps
0: yeah, and there and there, you know, Milwaukee is a is a city of bridges and viaducts, and so that that separate communities. Again, it's one of those cities that uh, the extreme segregation came when the highway system came in and literally separated communities by freeways, by hills, and by uh, police stations. So you have to cross. Uh, uh, a bridge. You have to go either up a big hill or down a big hill, and pass a police station, or to get to another community. Um, and so, in a place like Milwaukee, though, um, there is, um, you know, there there was, and I think can still be leadership. Um, within communities when something happens, like an incident of police miles. And there have been many occasions where people have come across the 6th Street Bridge or the 16th Street Bridge and met in the middle. Um, you know and it would be families. It would be so families um, from the north side who lost loved ones at the hands of the police, families from the south side who lost loved ones would each cross the bridge and meet in the middle. And I think that's part of our has to start. you know it, it, I think it's a commitment to be courageous enough to talk about um, the the systems and culture of violence, to talk about um, the the unaccountable power of police unions. And to not so much focus on the victim and 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 from a Latino organizing standpoint is like um, our communities need to be uh, courageous enough to say like you know we're gonna follow um, the model of what's happening in the movement for black lives you know we're gonna stand up in places like Boyle Heights and show leadership in the Latinx community that this isn't acceptable. And then the other piece is to show up. You know, in places like Milwaukee, there there's a lot of currency in showing up and being there. And Southside organizers, now's the time to show up and be there for Sherman Park. Don't think about about whether or not you know this this young man had a gun when he was killed, or whether or not um, uh, you know. Ch- challenge yourself to not believe and buy into the criminalization stereotypes and show up show up for your neighborhood. You know and come I was gonna,
1: out. yeah, I was going to ask you because you are in that space of organizing in the Latinx uh, community, which by the way is a new, you know, a new phrase. I'm getting it, you know. It doesn't roll mm-hmm. off the tongue yet because it's just kind of a it's very cutting edge. Um Within the Latinx community, do you see anti-black sentiment and do you think that that is something that needs to be dealt with and prevents the solidarity you're talking about?
0: I think this is a, a really incredible moment. The, the Movement for Black Lives, I think, have really allowed Latinx organizers, including Presente, it's really allowed us to make visible a lot of black communities and black folks within the Latinx community. And that is 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 really helpful because, you know, I think in order to really fight oppression and to move toward liberation, we have to be whole people. We have to embrace the dynamic communities that we are. You know, um, we are black and we are indigenous and we are have a relationship with whiteness and um, and we are cross gender cross race and I think that 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 there is such space there because of the tremendous organizing that I think we can uh, move into and show leadership on
1: Well speaking of leadership you are really showing that I mean you're making uh, incredible space for a new it's not just identity it's bigger than that um, and it allows for the kind of collaboration and cooperation um, that, I think it's so needed to address police violence.
0: Yeah, and I remember being in a in a meeting because I think the other thing is like it's not a it's not an either or. It's not either black or Latinx. It's both and more. And I remember being in a meeting where there was a debate around, like, should the resources go to Mexican folks or Puerto Rican folks or black folks? And there was this, you know, I think a really um, degenerative debate. And then, um, you know, I said, I, you know, I said, yes, they should go to, the resources should go to Puerto Ricans and black Puerto Ricans and Mexicans and Afro-Mexicanos. And, and so we have to really think about we can advocate and fight and show leadership for our interests and know that um, full liberation benefits us all. Black liberation benefits us all. And and I think that's the way to bridge that divide is that if we say, yes, we're committed to, like, like my organization is committed to building Latinx political power. And guess what? That also means... That we benefit from the liberation of Black people, and we benefit from uh, full rights for women, and we benefit from full LGBTQI rights, and and th- those are things that are non-negotiable. It oh. doesn't take away from. Again, it's not either or; it's both and more.
1: Yeah, and and. Um in the name of Jesse Romero, a 14-year-old boy recently shot and killed by police in L.A., uh, the name of uh, Anthony Nunez, um, Raul Vargas, and so, so many more, um, elevating the names of uh, victims of police violence in the Latino community as well as the black community help us to uh, see how much commonality we have in, in the struggle moving forward. And, I, and, of, and like
0: really examining how oppression, white supremacy, affects us and how it affects us differently and how it affects us similarly. But I think that that if we can focus on the systems of oppression and undoing those, um, then we can get a lot further on this um, unity and struggle, yeah. as Amiri Baraka used to say.
1: Mm. And ending on Amiri Baraka, Matt Nelson of uh, Presente.org. Thanks so much for joining us here on Democracy in Color. Thank you. Democracy and Color is a project of Power Pack Plus. This episode was recorded at Women's Audio Mission in San Francisco and produced by Lulu Matute with technical support from Kelly Coyne. Special thanks to our guest, the awesome executive director of Presente.org, Matt Nelson. You can listen to future episodes on democracyandcolor.com, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. If you appreciate this podcast as much as we appreciate you, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes. We're also on Facebook and on Twitter. Tell a friend, a colleague, or neighbor to tune in for their dose of political intelligence. So until next time, thanks for joining us.